Welcome to Trine Day's The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Paul Berkowitz, who served as a law enforcement professional for over 33 years. As a criminal investigator with the Department of the Interior, he received numerous commendations and awards for his work. Paul is the leading authority on the history of law enforcement in the National Park Service. His legacy of the Yosemite Mafia shows how an overemphasis on the ranger image led to misconduct perpetrated in the name of the Park Service and its mission. Paul's website is thelawoftheland.net. Chris and Paul, it's good to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for coming on. I mean, can you tell us about the... Um the controversy about you guys carrying guns and, and them trying to say that you hadn't carried guns, even though historically uh, rangers had carried guns. Can, can you explain that situation? You know, the actual history of law enforcement in the national parks, you know, goes, goes really all the way back into the late 1800s in Yellowstone National Park and, and some of the other early designated national parks, where the first function of the rangers really was primarily law enforcement. And you see that in a lot of the documentation from the early days, where uh, quotes like the ranger is primarily a police officer and other similar statements made by, by the early rangers. My observation is that that, that image, that, that emphasis on law enforcement kind of changed around the 60s and 70s when there was a large recruitment effort going on for the national parks called uh, the Ranger Intake Program. And again, this is the 60s and 70s, which, which you guys are very familiar with is a very tumultuous time in America. Uh, a lot of, you know, obviously anti-Vietnam sentiment, a lot of anti-law enforcement sentiment going on because of their association with riots and, and you know, um, abusive law enforcement practices that became evident to the American public through the riots and the police response, Chicago and down South. So the intake program, in my view, and, and I witnessed some of this, brought in a lot of kind of 60s, 70s college people into the Park Service who, in my judgment, were kind of anti-law enforcement and made a concerted effort to, to not be associated with, with law enforcement or professional policing. And I think they had a big impact on the National Park Service at that time by trying to, I guess, kind of steer away from what really had been the dominant role of rangers in the past. And I think during that period, there was a concerted effort made to bury a lot of the legitimate history. Another thing that contributed to it, of course, was that Park Service is a pretty decentralized agency and had very poor communications nationally. And there was really no centralized repository that documented the, the law enforcement incidents and the law enforcement role that Rangers had played across the country. Because you're talking from, from Shenandoah to Smokies, all the way out to California, Point Reyes and, and Grand Canyon and Yosemite and Yellowstone, all the records were kept locally. So there was no central repository that documented the level of crime and the level of law enforcement that had historically gone on in the Park Service. So all of that history and much of that is documented in the Yosemite Mafia book. What, not what is the Yosemite Mafia? The Yosemite Mafia really was a group of young rangers who, re, who were recruited as a part of the ranger intake program in the 70s. They were kind of targeted for management positions. They were recruited for, I guess, you know, some of their attitudes were targeted again for, for management through an intake program that progressively advanced them into senior positions. And it gave them really a very um, impactful role in developing a new ranger image. And it's when you, that's when you saw this ranger image being emphasized throughout the agency. 
There are memos that address the ranger image and statements like, well, it's not a, it's not a police function, which of course contradicted the entire history of, of what rangers had been. So it was kind of a whitewashing of what really was the traditional role of rangers and, and a de-emphasis on professional law enforcement. And of course, one of, the, one of the outcomes of that was that as law enforcement was trying to improve itself in the 70s and professionalize itself by addressing some of these concerns that the general public had, Park Service kind of went its own direction and claimed they were going to have, you know, National Park Service law enforcement instead of what I view as professional law enforcement. So there, there was this emphasis on image. They didn't want the public to associate rangers with law enforcement officers. So, you know, guns had to be hidden in glove boxes um, or not carried at all. Defensive equipment was not supposed to be visible. And um, we, we still have the vestiges of that to some extent in the National Park Service today. What, what was the result of that policy? Did it, did it cause problems? Well, it caused all kinds of problems. And what you, what you see is rangers confronting you know, the serious crime that, that had always gone on without adequate equipment and without access to um, you know, adequate communications. One of the, you know, there were two things that really were transformative for the Park Service. There was the Yosemite riot in 1970, yeah, most people aren't aren't familiar with the Yosemite riot of nineteen seventy. What what was that? It was it was basically a, a bunch of bunch of young quote unquote hippies that converged on Yosemite Valley, and you know they were smoking pot and getting drunk and partying, and they were doing it in in Stoneman Meadow, and they were partying there, camping illegally, and frankly, you know, kind of tearing up the grounds and leaving trash, and it was not a good environmental situation. And when the rangers tried to confront it, they were completely ill-equipped to address it. Uh, the rangers in Yosemite had no, no previous crowd control training. Um, they didn't have adequate equipment to deal with it. And so they literally brought in everybody. They brought in maintenance crews. They brought in administrative staff, put them on horses with, with baseball bats and axe handles and lassos to try to round up this crowd. I mean, it was crazy. And it turned into a riot. Uh, they ended up having to call in reinforcements from agencies outside the park and the U.S. Marshals, and there, were, there was even talk about bringing in the National Guard. And, you know, hundred, hundreds of kids were arrested. It received national attention because by the 70s, now you have national news coverage, and, and especially with proximity to San Francisco and Los Angeles. So it, it, it was a real black eye on the Park Service's image. And out of that, actually, that kind of reinforced it, that, well, the, the Park Service isn't equipped to deal with law modern law enforcement. That, in fact, was not necessarily the case because there were other national parks across the country that were very well equipped to do it. it. It was that local management in Yosemite had had this de-emphasis on law enforcement and, and a kind of a laid-back approach to it. And locally, in the park, they were ill-equipped for it. But Yosemite, of course, being an icon, got the attention. Three years later, at Point Reyes National Seashore, a ranger was murdered, Ken Patrick, and that made national attention again. The irony is that the Park Service, unaware of its own history, said that he was the first ranger ever to be murdered in the National Park Service, but he was not. He was the third. So the Park Service didn't even have records of the, of the prior two murders of rangers, and that just kind of points out how, how disorganized and how decentralized the agency was. So all of these issues, you know, the, the murder of Ken Patrick and then Yos and the Yosemite riot, it, it elevated the issue to national levels of national attention. And the Park Service response, believe it or not, was to de-emphasize law enforcement. 
you know, totally, totally contrary to what what the what a logical reaction would be. That's kind of the the you know that's part of the legacy of the Yosemite Mafia of this these group this group of young rangers coming out of Yosemite at that time, who put their stamp on how law enforcement would how how the law enforcement program would be developed in the agency for decades. So some of these people from Yosemite then uh, went farther up into the organization. Oh yeah, to position regional directors directors, deputy directors, you know, very, very high level policy positions. So, and not only the policy, but of course the attitude that they carried with them and that they tried to indoctrinate subordinate personnel with. So uh, do, now when you, you uh, get hired as a ranger, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, do you, do you see a, an ad in the paper and, and you, uh, you, go, you go apply? Is there, is there a ranger school that you go to or it, it, it depends on what your function is. B back again in the 60s and 70s, they had kind of a ranger academy that happened to be based at the south rim of the Grand Canyon Albright Training Center. Albright was a, one of the founders of the National Park Service. And it covered the whole spectrum of, of ranger functions, search and rescue, interpretation, leading walks, stuff like that, and some law enforcement, but on a very low level. After the Yosemite riot and after the murder of Ken Patrick, the Department of the Interior actually imposed mandates, imposed a mandate on the National Park Service, forcing them to start sending their law enforcement personnel or personnel who would carry law enforcement authority, forcing them to attend the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is the, the national central training academy for virtually all federal agencies or most federal agencies. And it's then that you start to see rangers having to go through that if they are assigned to law enforcement duties. But you also saw not only a bifurcation, but a trifurcation and a separation of roles in the agency. So you have designated interpreters, you have designated maintenance personnel, you have designated, quote, protection personnel, i.e. law enforcement. And if, if you were going to be assigned to law enforcement duties, that's when you start to see mandatory attendance at a professional law enforcement academy. So, and, and that's even today, although it's, it's far more distinct and more formalized, a formalized process. Now, Yosemite also, I mean, I don't know, it wasn't the first uh, national park, but it was one of the very earliest. And also within Yosemite, uh, there is private landowners, correct? Yeah, and, and that's not unusual for national parks. They're what they call inholdings, which are little islands of private land uh, that exist within the federal boundary. Yosemite, of course, has them, um, and but other parks do as well. And it's kind of a source of conflict because you have private individuals. Most of them are legacy properties that, that existed for decades, sometimes even preceding the designation of the national park. And of course, with the existence of the park itself, it puts restrictions and regulations on activities and uses that those private landowners can engage in. So it's a juggling act. There are a lot of times conflicts, both political as well as, as real. You know, they kind of manifest themselves over time, depending upon the position of management and the, the amount of political power that either side is able to uh, impose. Now, with your, with your book, what was it that you were trying to accomplish and did, did you accomplish that? Did anything change? Did something happen? Part of what I wanted to do with the book was to expose how in the long run, for decades, the Park Service has struggled with some of these conflicts and how the failure to truly professionalize its law enforcement program and failure to really impose 
meaningful standards for conduct and performance in the agency, not just law enforcement, in term, but management as well. They've, they've kind of contributed to some of the conflicts that exist between various constituencies and the agency. In, in effect, misconduct that, that occurs in the agency by senior personnel that really pisses off people and pisses off communities, and that frankly should be addressed internally. And the book is an attempt to kind of expose that and ex expose the, the historic nature of that and how the Park Service's failure to confront some of those issues is, is really a disservice to the overall mission and, and a disservice to the majority of employees in the Park Service who are trying to do the right thing. So it, it's, it's a kind of a case study of, of egregious misconduct that occurred in Yosemite when I was there that was not addressed. It was, it was actually covered up and kind of aggravated relationships with, with some of these private landholders and, and gave them fuel to, uh, to kind of grow and develop political power to oppose the mission of the National Park Service. Did you get, uh, did you get pushback? Did you get blowback from uh, the Department of the Interior or the National Park Service? Well, it depends. Do you mean in, in terms of what I did that's described in the book or the book itself? Uh, the book itself. Well, the, the blowback was is that the Park Service didn't want to carry it in any of their bookstores. <laughs> so when the book first came out, there's a process where you, where you get your book authorized to be, to be sold in, in bookstores that are in the national parks. Um, most of the bookstores are run by nonprofit cooperating associations. And you have to submit the book for, you know, and they, they review it for academic quality, for, for uh, accuracy and various other literary standards. So pretty soon after the book came out, I submitted it to the cooperating association. It's called the Yosemite Conservancy in Yosemite National Park. They got it, they reviewed it, they sent me the feedback saying, yes, this is worthy of being sold in the national park. And they in turn have to submit it to the park itself for final approval. And um, the Park Service kind of buried the book. <laughs> it took them a year and a half to respond in what should have, it is normally about a two or three month process. And they claimed that they had never received it. Well, the Yosemite Conservancy con confirmed that they had, and in fact, they had emails <laughs> documenting correspondence with the park. And uh, I, I couldn't break through that barrier. And it was not until about a year and a half later when, when Yosemite got a new superintendent. Um, and I wrote a letter to him complaining about the fact that, that my book was being censored and being, uh, the process was being stonewalled. And uh, he finally cut through it. And within a week, I got an apology from the people in the park that had been obstructing the book. And then shortly thereafter, I got noticed that, that they were going to carry the book in the park bookstores and on the website that they had. So there's a concerted effort to bury this kind of material. And, and you know, I have another book, not, not to pitch it, but uh, the case of the Indian trader, that is still not allowed to be sold in any national parks, even, well, even at the park where the, where the story takes place. So do they, do they give you a, a written reason why they won't sell the book? No, 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 <laughs> they don't do that. They just ignore you. Well, I, I, but this is the federal government, you know, not selling because, you know, I, I, I like books, you know, and and, you know, one thing I, I, I publish these books is I, I'm hoping that, you know, change will will happen, you know, from these books, from, you know, looking at a problem and discussion and saying, well, you know, there, there's something here. And yes, uh, uh, one of the big things that they tend to do if there's something there they tend to ignore it, you know, um, especially if it can't be used as a as a foil to, to fight to, you know, to to get what they want. So 
I guess I'm going back to, to the question, did the book help you accomplish something? On a personal level, yeah. It, I had something to say and it allowed me to say it and put it out there in public. And it also refuted some false information that was out there and um, pretty widely accepted in certain circles of the Park Service. It provided documentable proof of what had really happened, the criminality of what had happened, and the, you know, don't want to overuse the word, but the conspiratorial nature of, of uh, kind of covering up what had happened. When the book, uh, you know, got to sell at Yosemite and, and it was actually in the, in the bookstore, did you get any feedback from people that, that read it uh, while it used at, you know, they picked it up at Yosemite? You know, not really. And, and unfortunately, of course, part of the problem is that, that the authorization to sell the book came out very shortly before the pandemic. When the, when the park was shut down, the bookstores were shut down. Um, and I think some of those facilities are still, you know, shut down or, or restricted on a very, you know, to a pretty great extent. So the opportunity to really still get it out there through the, through the park is limited. But, you know, maybe in the future as things open up, we'll see more, a more receptive uh, take on it. Can you tell us a little bit about this book that they won't sell, the Trading Post one? It, it uses a different incident, a, a different case study, if you will about corruption and just a lack of law enforcement professionalism. And uh, that book basically details um, an old Indian trader, one of the last real Indian traders on the Navajo reservation, who for various reasons was wrongly targeted and accused of embezzling millions of dollars. And uh, they, they basically ruined the guy's life, Billy Malone, uh, who was a pretty famous Indian trader on the reservation. And the last real Indian trader at Hubble Trading Post, which is a national historic site run by the National Park Service. As a result of some management changes, managers that came in saw what Billy was doing and they didn't understand how Indian trading worked. And um, when they couldn't figure out his books, that is to say his, his accounting method, which was all shirt pocket accounting, a non-English speaking Navajo elder would come in and bring a rug and and um, she would need some supplies for her home or, or need some money you know, Billy basically would give, give, give her money on a handshake. So not, not a rigorous accounting system, but that's old time Indian trading on the reservation. I mean, it's kind of a lost art now, particularly with the outcome of what happened in that investigation. But Billy was wrongly targeted. And after about a year and a half, I was not assigned to the case at all. There were, there were other agents assigned to it. They were not able to prove anything or even develop any real meaningful evidence against the Indian trader. I was asked to take over the investigation. And within about two weeks of doing it, it became evident that the predicate allegations were completely false. There was no foundation for the search warrants that they had executed. In fact, there were false statements made in the affidavit for the search warrant. Implicated were some pretty high level officials in the agency. The accusing entity, which was the Western National Parks Association was actually paying the park service, giving them money to support the investigation, which was a huge conflict of interest. The deeper I got into the investigation, the more improprieties I, I discovered. So um, I basically turned the case around and it turned it over to the Office of the Inspector General. It turned into an internal investigation into the National Park Service instead of into this guy. And my report essentially exonerated him and implicated all the way up to the Deputy Director of the National Park Service and the Executive Director of, of the Nonprofit Association. It has a lot of similarities actually to the Yosemite Mafia uh, book, which is about basically an illegal bugging. They, they illegally bugged one of the private landholders that we talked about in Yosemite. 
to try to get stuff on him so that they could ruin his reputation because he was a, a thorn in, in their side. And I was aware of, of the bugging and made every effort imaginable to report it through channels. And the Park Service was able to cover the thing up over, over about a year and a half. I mean, a, a long-term cover-up, including congressional officials, once again, including high-level Park Service officials. And, uh, you know, so the, these are basically two examples of whistleblowing about serious misconduct in the agency, separated by a 30-year period. And the Yosemite Mafia book, really the, the, one of the key things it does is to demonstrate how this is a persistent problem that spans decades. It, these are not isolated incidents. And to that extent, yeah, the book, the book does what I wanted it to do. Good. So, so uh, the Trying Day book is, is a legacy of the Yosemite Mafia. What's the name of this other book? The Case of the Indian Trader, and the subtitle is Billy Malone and the National Park Service Investigation at Hubble Trading Post. Okay. Corruption in the, in the National Park Service. I mean, are, are there people that are running corruption for their, uh, for their own enrichment that, that are making money, or is it uh, basically uh, turf wars? Or, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's more, it's a turf war. It's an ego thing. It's a power thing. There are very, very few examples of it having any monetary benefit other than, you know, high grade in the positions that they hold. And one of the things that I emphasize, of course, in the Yosemite Mafia, and I did in, in the case of the Indian trader also, is that, you know, these people are a very small minority of, of the people in the agency, but they're, they're in very powerful positions. And they have, there's an intimidation factor so that most of the people, the majority of employees who see this go, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's not worth the trouble to report it because they see what happens to whistleblowers like myself. It kind of sets a tone for the agency. One of the, one of the things that, that I've said before is that you know, ethics in, in government is a top-down thing. If the people at the top are either corrupt or even not aggressive in addressing misconduct, then employees throughout the agency kind of see that. They throw up their hands and they just go along with whatever practices they see instead of having the courage and, and the support to step forward and say, and say, this is unacceptable, this is wrong, I'm gonna report it and, and I'm not gonna go along with it. If they see that there's no action taken on the reports or they see that there are re repercussions, reprisal for reporting, then people go silent. Yeah. Whereas if, if they see that action is taken and that at least there's no reprisal, if, if not maybe accommodation for having the guts to step forward and address misconduct or, or speak out about it, you know, those are the things that, that permeate an agency and, and create the culture of the agency. And, and I think in the National Park Service, they have yet to really fully address that. I, I want to thank you very much for, you know, coming on and, and, and telling this story here. Uh, Bruce, do you have any uh, questions? Yes. Paul, how far back into the Park Service's history does your book cover? Well, you know, there's some, pre there's some background material there where I talk about the history of law enforcement of the agency, and that goes back to the 1880s, 1890s, so, which is really a fascinating and, and sometimes very graphic history. You know, there, it was the Wild West, and, and the Rangers were engaged in Wild West law enforcement activities, you know, shootouts and all kinds of crazy things that people don't associate with the national parks. But, but that's the history. And of course, it's a very cool history, very interesting stuff. You know, a lot of these old characters, when I began my research in really the 80s, some of the old timers were still around and I got a chance to interview them. Some of them sent me their files. There, were, there was an old guy who was in a shootout in 1953 
he sent me his entire case file that he had. I mean, he had his medical records. He had all the newspaper headlines. The park where it happened had nothing. They had no record of it at all. I got, there was a guy who was shot in 1935, I believe, back in, a, in an Eastern park. God, he had, he had everything and, and wrote an entire narrative that, that appeared, that is actually in Legacy of the Yosemite Mafia. It's a great account, but this is the sort of stuff that was buried. And of course, by burying that history, it allowed the agency to kind of craft this ranger image, but it also caused the agency to develop policies that didn't acknowledge the real threats and the real law enforcement load that rangers carry. So if you don't know about your history, you develop policies that doesn't acknowledge what happens. Just an off the wall question. What was the wildest thing that you saw as a ranger in, in the national parks? You're talking about an incident or management? <laughs> management I'm talking issue. about an incident. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about an incident. Yeah. You know, s some of the some of the things that I reflect on when I was at Lake Mead were, you know, frankly, the riots that we had at Lake Mead in the early days with just hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of kids coming out of Las Vegas with drunken brawls and parties and rocks thrown at our vehicles, you know, windows broken and us having to retreat, um, just unable to hand, handle the, the mob, you know, stuff like that. I mean, and that was almost commonplace. I mean, there was, hell, there was one, one weekend there one, one three-day 4th of July weekend where we had 12 fatalities. I was the first on scene of four of them. Wow. You know, just, just the magnitude of the craziness and the death and the violence. And again, people don't associate this with national parks, but no. this, this is what we see and this is what we deal with. I mean, crazy stuff goes on in parks all the time. One of the, right. one of the crazy things is people come to parks to commit suicide all the time. You know, and that, that was one of the heavy caseloads that we had at, at Grand Canyon was, was it a suicide or was it a murder? And you become kind of a, not inoculated against it, but you know, I guess the experience of it kind of uh, offers you a, a different perspective on, on the things that go on in parks. And again, you know, part of my objective is to educate the public, but also to educate the park service on how much this stuff happens and how long it has been going on like that. This is not new. This has been going on for a very, very long time. We've simply failed to acknowledge it and failed to address it. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, people, they think they own the parks, right? So they can do whatever they want. Yeah, there's, there's an essay I have, I have posted on my website called the middle of nowhere syndrome. And uh, it talks about that, you know, that there's three categories of, of visitors. And I hearken back to the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's the good, there's the, the innocent visitor who comes to a park and thinks there's no crime here and, and I don't have to worry about anything because there's no crime here and there's no need for law enforcement. And they, they're just careless. They leave their cars unlocked. They leave stuff in the campsites that's valuable, that you know, is easy pickings for somebody that wants to steal it. Then there's the bad, which are the people who come to parks and think, damn it, I'm on vacation and I'm gonna have a good time because I can, get, I can party hardier here than I can back home because I'm in the middle of nowhere and I can get away with stuff that I would never dream of at home. And then there's the ugly, which is the professional criminal who comes to parks <laughs> knowing that it's easy pickings and, and specifically target people. You know, there are auto burglary rings, there are meth labs, uh, you know, drug, major scale drug operations in some of the remote parks. Hang on a minute. So yeah, I mean, people don't really, I think educating the public about what really does go on in parks is an important component. Right, well, I, I mean, that was one of the biggest things that impressed me about your book was about how you guys had been rangers with guns, 
And then they tried to say, oh, well, the park rangers, they're just, you know, Smokey the Bear with a hat and nothing happens in the parks where people would need guns. And <laughs> you well, remember, and I, and I talk about this in the book, Charles Manson was arrested by rangers in Death Valley National Monument. That, that, le that led to exposing all the murders down in Southern California. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Paul, for, for coming on. And, and, you know, you really brought out the reasons why we published this book. And I appreciate you uh, talking about it here on the podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. Good to be with you. Thank you. Onward.